This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Seven The Rescuer of Dames. One. It next happened that Denry began to suffer from the ravages of a malady which is almost worse than failure, namely, a surfeit of success. The success was that of his universal thrift club. This device, by which members, after subscribing one pound in weekly instalments, could at once get two pounds worth of goods at nearly any large shop in the district, appealed with enormous force to the democracy of the five towns. There was no need whatever for Denry to spend money on advertising. The first members of the club did all the advertising, and made no charge for doing it. A stream of people, anxious to deposit money with Denry in exchange for a card, never ceased to flow into his little office in St. Luke's Square. The stream, indeed, constantly thickened. It was a wonderful invention, the Universal Thrift Club, and Denry ought to have been happy, especially as his beard was growing strongly and evenly, and giving him the desired air of a man of wisdom and stability." but he was not happy, and the reason was that the popularity of the thrift club necessitated much bookkeeping, which he hated. He was an adventurer, in the old honest sense, and no clerk, and he found himself obliged not merely to buy large books of account, but to fill them with figures, and to do addition sums from page to page, and to fill up hundreds of cards, and to write out lists of shops, and to have long interviews with printers, whose proofs made him dream of lunatic asylums, and to reckon innumerable piles of small coins, and to assist his small office-boy in the great task of licking envelopes and stamps. Moreover, he was worried by shopkeepers. Every shopkeeper in the district now wanted to allow him tuppence in the shilling on the purchases of club members, and he had to collect all the subscriptions, in addition to his rents, and also to make personal preliminary inquiries as to the reputation of intending members. If he could have risen every day at 4 a.m., and stayed up working every night till 4 a.m., he might have got through most of the labour. He did, as a fact, come very near to this ideal, so near that one morning his mother said to him, at her driest, "'I suppose I might as well sell your bedstead, Denry?' And there was no hope of improvement. Instead of decreasing, the work multiplied." What saved him was the fortunate death of lawyer Lawton. The aged solicitor's death put the town into mourning, and hung the church with black. But Denry, as a citizen, bravely bore the blow, because he was able to secure the services of Penkethman, lawyer Lawton's eldest clerk, who, after keeping the Lawton books and writing the Lawton letters for thirty-five years, was dismissed by young Lawton for being over fifty and behind the times. The desiccated bachelor was grateful to Denry. He called Denry Sir, or rather he called Denry's suit of clothes Sir, for he had a vast respect for a well-cut suit. On the other hand, he maltreated the little office boy, for he had always been accustomed to maltreating little office boys, not seriously, but just enough to give them an interest in life. Penkethman enjoyed desks, ledgers, pens, ink, rulers, and blotting-paper. He could run from bottom to top of a column of figures more quickly than the fire-engine could run up Oldcastle Street, and his totals were never wrong. 
His gesture with a piece of blotting-paper, as he blotted off a total, was magnificent. He liked long hours, he was thoroughly used to overtime, and his boredom in his lodgings was such that he would often arrive at the office before the appointed hour. He asked thirty shillings a week, and Denry, in a mood of generosity, gave him thirty-one. He gave Denry his whole life, and put a meticulous order into the establishment. Denry secretly thought him a miracle, but up at the club at Port Hill he was content to call him the human machine. "'I wind him up every Saturday night with a sovereign, half a sovereign and a shilling,' said Denry, "'and he goes for a week. Compensated balance, adjusted for all temperatures, no escapement, jewelled in every hole, ticks in any position, made in England.' This jocularity of Denry's was a symptom that Denry's spirits were rising. The bearded youth was seen oftener in the streets behind his mule and his dog. The adventurer had indeed taken to the road again. After an emaciating period, he began once more to stoughten. He was the image of success. He was the picturesque card, whom everybody knew, and everybody had pleasure in greeting. In some sort, he was rather like the flag on the town hall. And then a graver misfortune threatened. It arose out of the fact that though Denry was a financial genius, he was in no sense qualified to be a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. The notion that an excess of prosperity may bring ruin had never presented itself to him, until one day he discovered that out of over two thousand pounds there remained less than six hundred to his credit at the bank. This was at the stage of the thrift club, when the founder of the thrift club was bound under the rules to give credit. When the original lady member had paid in her two pounds or so, she was entitled to spend four pounds or so at shops. She did spend four pounds or so at shops, and Denry had to pay the shops. He was thus temporarily nearly two pounds out of pocket, and he had to collect that sum by trifling instalments. Multiply this case by five hundred, and you will understand the drain on Denry's capital. Multiply it by a thousand, and you will understand the very serious peril which overhung Denry. Multiply it by fifteen hundred, and you will understand that Denry had been culpably silly to inaugurate a mighty scheme like the Universal Thrift Club on a paltry capital of two thousand pounds. He had. In his simplicity, he had regarded two thousand pounds as boundless wealth. Although new subscriptions poured in, the drain grew more distressing. Yet he could not persuade himself to refuse new members. He stiffened his rules, and compelled members to pay at his office, instead of on their own doorsteps. He instituted fines for irregularity. But nothing could stop the progress of the Universal Thrift Club, and disaster approached. Denry felt as though he was being pushed nearer and nearer to the edge of a precipice by a tremendous multitude of people. At length, very much against his inclination, he put up a card in his window— but no new members could be accepted until further notice, pending the acquisition of larger offices and other arrangements. For the shrewd it was a confession of failure, and he knew it. Then the rumour began to form, and to thicken, and to spread, that Denry's famous Universal Thrift Club was unsound at the core, and that the teeth of those who had bitten the apple would be set on edge. And Denry saw that something great, something decisive, must be done, and done with rapidity. 2. His thoughts turned to the Countess of Chell. 
The original attempt to engage her moral support in aid of the thrift club had ended in a dangerous fiasco. Denry had been beaten by circumstances, and though he had emerged from the defeat with credit, he had no taste for defeat. He disliked defeat, even when it was served with jam, and his indomitable thoughts turned to the Countess again. He put it to himself in this way, scratching his head. "'I've got to get hold of that woman, and that's all about it.' The Countess, at this period, was busying herself with the policeman of the five towns. In her exhaustless passion for philanthropy, bazaars, and platforms, she had already dealt with orphans, the aged, the blind, potter's asthma, creches, churches, chapels, schools, economic cookery, the smoke nuisance, country holidays, Christmas puddings and blankets, healthy musical entertainments, and barmaids. The excellent and beautiful creature was suffering from a dearth of subjects when the policeman occurred to her. She made the benevolent discovery that policemen were overworked, underpaid, courteous and trustworthy public servants, and that our lives depended on them. And from this discovery it naturally followed that policemen deserved her energetic assistance, which assistance resulted in the erection of a policeman's institute at Hanbridge, the chief of the five towns. At the Institute, policemen would be able to play at draughts, read the papers, and drink everything non-alcoholic at prices that defied competition. And the Institute also conferred other benefits on those whom all the five mayors of the five towns fell into the way of describing as the stalwart guardians of the law. The Institute, having been built, had to be opened with due splendour and ceremony, and naturally the Countess of Chell was the person to open it since without her it would never have existed. The solemn day was a day in March, and the hour was fixed for three o'clock, and the place was the large hall of the Institute itself, behind Crown Square, which is the Trafalgar Square of Hanbridge. The Countess was to drive over from Snaid. Had the epoch been ten years later, she would have motored over, but probably that would not have made any difference to what happened. In relating what did happen, I confine myself to facts, eschewing imputations. It is a truism that life is full of coincidences, but whether these events comprised a coincidence or not, each reader must decide for himself, according to his cynicism, or his faith in human nature. The facts are, first, that Denry called one day at the house of Mrs. Kemp, a little lower down Broom Street, Mrs. Kemp being friendly with Mrs. Machin, and the mother of Jock, the Countess's carriage-footman, whom Denry had known from boyhood. Second, that a few days later, when Jock came over to see his mother, Denry was present, and that subsequently Denry and Jock went for a stroll together in the cemetery, the principal resort of strollers in Bursley. Third, that on the afternoon of the opening ceremony, the Countess's carriage broke down in Snaid Vale, two miles from Snaid, and three miles from Hanbridge. Fourth, that five minutes later, Denry, in all his best clothes, drove up behind his mule. Fifth, that Denry drove right past the breakdown, apparently not noticing it. Sixth, that Jock, touching his hat to Denry as if to a stranger, for, of course, while on duty a footman must be dead to all humanities, said, "'Excuse me, sir,' and so caused Denry to stop." These are the simple facts. Denry looked round, with that careless half-turn of the upper part of the body which drivers of elegant equipages affect when their attention is called to something trifling behind them. 
The mule also looked round. It was a habit of the mule's. And if the dog had been there, the dog would have shown an even livelier inquisitiveness. But Denry had left the faithful animal at home. "'Good afternoon, Countess,' he said, raising his hat, and trying to express surprise, pleasure, and imperturbability all at once. The Countess of Chell, who was standing in the road, raised her lorgnon, which was attached to the end of a tortoiseshell pole about a foot long, and regarded Denry. This lorgnon was a new device of hers, and it was already having the happy effect of increasing the sale of long-handled lorgnons throughout the five towns. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' said the Countess. "'I see you've grown a beard.' It was just this easy familiarity that endeared her to the district. As observant people put it, you never knew what she would say next, and yet she never compromised her dignity. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Have you had an accident?' "'No,' said the Countess, bitterly. "'I'm doing this for idle amusement.' The horses had been taken out, and were grazing by the roadside like common horses. The coachman was dipping his skirts in the mud as he bent down in front of the carriage and twisted the pole to and fro and round about and round about. The footman, Jock, was industriously watching him. "'It's the pole-pin, sir,' said Jock. Denry descended from his own hammercloth. The Countess was not smiling. It was the first time that Denry had seen her without an efficient smile on her face. "'Have you got to be anywhere particular?' he asked. Many ladies would not have understood what he meant, but the Countess was used to the five towns. "'Yes,' said she, "'I've got to be somewhere particular. I've got to be at the Police Institute at three o'clock particular, Mr. Machin, and I shan't be. I'm late now. We've been here ten minutes.' The Countess was rather too often late for public ceremonies. Nobody informed her of the fact. Everybody, on the contrary, assiduously pretended that she had arrived the very second but she was well aware that she had a reputation for unpunctuality. Ordinarily, being too hurried to invent a really clever excuse, she would assert lightly that something had happened to her carriage. And now something in truth had happened to her carriage. But who would believe it in the police institute? "'If you'll come with me, I'll guarantee to get you there by three o'clock,' said Denry. The road thereabouts was lonely. A canal ran parallel with it at a distance of fifty yards— and on the canal the boat was moving in the direction of Hanbridge at the rate of a mile an hour. Such was the only other vehicle in sight. The outskirts of Knype, the nearest town, did not begin until at least a mile further on, and the Countess, dressed for the undoing of mares and other unimpressionable functionaries, could not possibly have walked even half a mile in that rich dark mud. She thanked him, and without a word to her servants, took the seat beside him. Three. Immediately the mule began to trot, the Countess began to smile again. Relief and content were painted upon her handsome features. Denry soon learnt that she knew all about mules, or almost all. She told him how she had ridden hundreds of miles on mules in the Apennines, where there were no roads, and only mules, goats, and flies could keep their feet on the steep, stony paths. She said that a good mule was worth forty pounds in the Apennines, more than a horse of similar quality. In fact, she was very sympathetic about mules. Denry saw that he must drive with as much style as possible, and he tried to remember all that he had picked up from a book concerning the proper manner of holding the reins. For in everything that appertained to riding and driving, the Countess was an expert. 
In the season she hunted once or twice a week with the North Staffordshire hounds, and the signal had stated that she was a fearless horsewoman. It made this statement one day when she had been thrown and carried to Snade senseless. The mule, too, seemingly conscious of its responsibilities and its high destiny, put its best foot foremost, and behaved in general like a mule that knew the name of its great-grandfather. It went through Knype in admirable style, not swerving at the steam-cars, nor exciting itself about the railway bridge. A photographer who stood at his door manoeuvring a large camera startled it momentarily, until it remembered that it had seen a camera before. The countess, who wondered why on earth a photographer should be capering round a tripod in a doorway, turned to inspect the man with her lorgnon. They were now coursing up the Calden Bank towards Hanbridge. They were already within the boundaries of Hanbridge, and a pedestrian here and there recognised the countess. You can hide nothing from the quidnunc of Hanbridge. Moreover, when a quidnunc in the streets of Hanbridge sees somebody famous or striking or notorious, he does not pretend that he has seen nobody. He points unmistakably to what he has observed, if he has a companion, and if he has no companion, he stands still and stares with such honest intensity that the entire street stands and stares too. Occasionally you may see an entire street standing and staring without any idea of what it is staring at. As the equipage dashingly approached the busy centre of Hambridge, the region of fine shops, public houses, hotels, halls, and theatres, more and more of the inhabitants knew that Iris, as they affectionately called her, was driving with a young man in a tumble-down little Victoria behind a mule whose ears flapped like an elephant's. Denry being far less renowned in Hanbridge than in his native Bursley, few persons recognised him. After the Victoria had gone by, people who had heard the news too late rushed from shops and gazed at the Countess's back, as at a fading dream, until the insistent clang of a car-bell made them jump again to the footpath. At length Denry and the Countess could see the clock of the old town hall in Crown Square, and it was a minute to three. They were less than a minute off the Institute. "'There you are,' said Denry proudly. Three miles if it's a yard, in seventeen minutes. For a mule it's none so dusty.' And such was the Countess's knowledge of the language of the five towns, that she instantly divined the meaning of even that phrase, "non so dusty.' They swept into Crown Square grandly, and then, with no warning, the mule suddenly applied all the automatic brakes which a mule has, and stopped. "'Oh, Lord!' sighed Denry. He knew the cause of that arresting. A large squad of policemen, a perfect regiment of policemen, was moving across the north side of the square, in the direction of the Institute. Nothing could have seemed more reassuring, less harmful than that band of policemen, off duty for the afternoon, and collected together for the purpose of giving a hearty and policemanly welcome to their benefactress, the Countess. But the mule had his own views about policemen. In the early days of Denry's ownership of him, he had nearly always shied at the spectacle of a policeman. He would tolerate steam-rollers, and even falling kites, but a policeman had ever been antipathetic to him. Denry, by patience and punishment, had gradually brought him round almost to the Countess's view of policemen, namely, that they were a courteous and trustworthy body of public servants, not to be treated as scarecrows or the dregs of society. At any rate, the mule had of late months practically ceased to set his face against the policing of the five towns, 
and when he was on his best behaviour he would ignore a policeman completely. But there were several hundreds of policemen in that squad, the majority of all the policemen in the five towns, and clearly the mule considered that Denry, in confronting him with several hundred policemen simultaneously, had been presuming upon his good nature. The mule's ears were saying agitatedly, "'A line must be drawn somewhere, and I have drawn it where my forefeet now are.' The mule's ears soon drew together a little crowd. It occurred to Denry that if mules were so wonderful in the Apennines, the reason must be that there are no policemen in the Apennines. It also occurred to him that something must be done to this mule. "'Well,' said the Countess, inquiringly, it was a challenge to him to prove that he, and not the mule, was in charge of the expedition. He briefly explained the mule's idiosyncrasy, as it were apologising for its bad taste in objecting to public servants whom the Countess cherished. "'They'll be out of sight in a moment,' said the Countess, and both she and Denry tried to look as if the Victoria had stopped in that special spot for a special reason, and that the mule was a pattern of obedience. Nevertheless, the little crowd was growing a little larger. "'Now,' said the Countess encouragingly, the tail of the regiment of policemen had vanished towards the Institute. <coughs> Denry persuaded the mule. No response from those forefeet. "'Perhaps I'd better get out and walk,' the Countess suggested. The crowd was becoming inconvenient, and had even begun to offer unsolicited hints as to the proper management of mules. The crowd was also saying to itself, "'It's her! It's her! It's her!' meaning that it was the Countess. "'Oh, no,' said Denry, "'it's all right,' and he caught the mule one over the head with his whip. The mule, stung into action, dashed away, and the crowd scattered as if blown to pieces by the explosion of a bomb. Instead of pursuing a right line, the mule turned within a radius of its own length, swinging the Victoria round after it, as though the Victoria had been a kettle attached to it with string, and Countess Denry and Victoria were wrapped with miraculous swiftness away, not at all towards the policeman's institute, but down Longshaw Road, which is tolerably steep. They were pursued, but ineffectually, for the mule had bolted and was winged. They fortunately came into contact with nothing except a large barrow of carrots, turnips, and cabbages, which an old woman was wheeling up Longshore Road. The concussion upset the barrow, half filled the Victoria with vegetables, and for a second stayed the mule, but no real harm seemed to have been done, and the mule proceeded with vigour. Then the Countess noticed that Denry was not using his right arm, which swung about rather uselessly. "'I must have knocked my elbow against the barrow,' he muttered. His face was pale. "'Give me the reins,' said the Countess. "'I think I can turn the brute up here,' he said. And he did, in fact, neatly divert the mule up Birch's Street, which is steeper even than Longshore Road. The mule, for a few instants, pretended that all gradients, up or down, were equal before its angry might. But Birch's Street has the slope of a house-roof. Presently the mule walked and then it stood still, and half Birch's Street emerged to gaze, for the Countess's attire was really very splendid. "'I'll leave this here, and we'll walk back,' said Denry. "'You won't be late. That is nothing to speak of. The Institute is just round the top here.' "'You don't mean to say that you're going to let that mule beat you?' exclaimed the Countess. "'I was only thinking of your being late.' 
"'Oh, bother!' said she. "'Your mule may be ruined.' The horse-trainer in her was aroused. "'And then my arm,' said Denry. "'Shall I drive back?' the Countess suggested. "'Oh, do,' said Denry. "'Keep on up the street, and then to the left.' They changed places, and two minutes later she had brought the mule to an obedient rest in front of the police institute, which was all newly red with terracotta. The main body of policemen had passed into the building, but two remained at the door, and the mule haughtily tolerated them. The Countess dispatched one to Longshore Road, to settle with the old woman whose vegetables they had brought away with them. The other policeman, who, owing to the Countess's philanthropic energy, had received a course of instruction in first aid, arranged a sling for Denry's arm. And then the Countess said that Denry ought certainly to go with her to the inauguration ceremony. The policeman whistled a boy to hold the mule. Denry picked a carrot out of the complex folds of the Countess's rich costume, and the Countess and her saviour entered the portico, and were therein met by an imposing group of important male personages, several of whom wore mayoral chains. Strange tales of what had happened to the Countess had already flown up to the Institute, and the chief expression on the faces of the group seemed to be one of astonishment that she still lived. 4. Denry observed that the Countess was now a different woman. She had suddenly put on a manner to match her costume, which in certain parts was stiff with embroidery. From the informal companion and the tamer of mules, she had miraculously developed into the public celebrity, the peeress of the realm, and the inaugurator-general of philanthropic schemes and buildings. Not one of the important male personages but would have looked down on Denry, and yet, while treating Denry as a jolly equal, the Countess, with all her embroidered and stiff politeness, somehow looked down on the important male personages, and they knew it, and the most curious thing was that they seemed rather to enjoy it. The one who seemed to enjoy it the least was Sir Jehoshaphat Dane, a white-bearded pillar of terrific imposingness. Sir G., as he was then beginning to be called, had recently been knighted, by way of reward for his enormous benefactions to the community. In the role of philanthropist he was really much more effective than the Countess. But he was not young, he was not pretty, he was not a woman, and his family had not helped to rule England for generations, at any rate, so far as anybody knew. He had made more money than had ever before been made by a single brain in the manufacture of earthenware, and he had given more money to public causes than a single pocket had ever before given in the five towns. He had never sought municipal honours, considering himself to be somewhat above such trifles. He was the first purely local man to be knighted in the five towns. Even before the bestowal of the knighthood his sense of humour had been deficient, and immediately afterwards it had vanished entirely. Indeed, he did not miss it. He divided the population of the kingdom into two classes, the titled and the untitled. With Sir G, either you were titled or you weren't. He lumped all the untitled together, and to be just to his logical faculty, he lumped all the titled together. There were various titles, Sir G admitted that, but a title was a title, and therefore all titles were practically equal. The Duke of Norfolk was one titled individual, and Sir G was another. The fine difference between them might be perceptible to the titled, 
and might properly be recognised by the titled when the titled were among themselves. But for the untitled, such a difference ought not to exist, and could not exist. Thus, for Sir G., there were two titled beings in the group, the Countess and himself. The Countess and himself formed one caste in the group, and the rest another caste. And although the Countess, in her punctilious demeanour towards him, gave due emphasis to his title, he returning more than due emphasis to hers, he was not precisely pleased by the undertones of suave condescension that characterised her greeting of him, as well as her greeting of the others. Moreover, he had known Denry as a clerk of Mr. Duncalf's, for Mr. Duncalf had done a lot of legal work for him in the past. He looked upon Denry as an upstart, a capering mountebank, and he strongly resented Denry's familiarity with the Countess. He further resented Denry's sling, which gave to Denry an interesting romantic aspect, despite his beard, and he more than all resented that Denry should have rescued the Countess from a carriage accident by means of his preposterous mule. Whenever the Countess, in the preliminary chatter, referred to Denry, or looked at Denry in recounting the history of her adventures, Sir G.'s soul squirmed, and his body sympathised with his soul. Something in him that was more powerful than himself compelled him to do his utmost to reduce Denry to a moral pulp, to flatten him, to ignore him, or to exterminate him by the application of ice. This tactic was no more lost on the Countess than it was on Denry, and the Countess foiled it at every instant. In truth, there existed between the Countess and Sir G. a rather hot rivalry in philanthropy and the cultivation of the higher welfare of the district. He regarded himself, and she regarded herself, as the most brightly glittering star of the five towns. When the Countess had finished the recital of her journey, and the faces of the group had gone through all the contortions proper to express terror, amazement, admiration, and manly sympathy, Sir G. took the lead, coughed, and said in his elaborate style, "'Before we adjourn to the hall, will not your ladyship take a little refreshment?' "'Oh, no, thanks,' said the Countess. "'I'm not a bit upset.' Then she turned to the ensling Denry, and with concern added, "'But will you have something?' If she could have foreseen the consequences of her question, she might never have put it. Still, she might have put it just the same. Denry paused an instant, and an old habit rose up in him. "'Oh, no, thanks,' he said, and turning deliberately to Sir G., he added, "'Will you?' This, of course, was mere crude insolence to the titled philanthropic white beard, but it was by no means the worst of Denry's behaviour. The group, every member of the group, distinctly perceived a movement of Denry's left hand towards Sir G. It was the very slightest movement, a wavering, a nothing. It would have had no significance whatever but for one fact. Denry's left hand still held the carrot. Everybody exhibited the most marvellous self-control and everybody except Sir G. was secretly charmed, for Sir G. had never inspired love. It is remarkable how local philanthropists are unloved locally. The Countess, without blenching, gave the signal for what Sir G. called the adjournment to the hall. Nothing might have happened, yet everything had happened. 5. 
Next, Denry found himself seated on the temporary platform which had been erected in the large games hall of the Policeman's Institute. The Mayor of Hanbridge was in the chair, and he had the Countess on his right and the Mayoress of Bursley on his left. Other mayoral chains blazed in the centre of the platform, together with fine hats of mayoresses and uniforms of police superintendents and captains of fire brigades. Denry's sling also contributed to the effectiveness. He was placed behind the Countess. Policemen, looking strange without helmets, and their wives, sweethearts, and friends, filled the hall to its fullest. Enthusiasm was rife and strident, and there was only one little sign that the untoward had occurred. That little sign was an empty chair in the first row near the Countess. Sir G., a prey to sudden indisposition, had departed. He had somehow faded away while the personages were climbing the stairs. He had faded away amid the expressed regrets of those few who, by chance, saw him in the act of fading. But even these bore up manfully. The high humour of the gathering was not eclipsed. Towards the end of the ceremony came the votes of thanks, and the principal of these was the vote of thanks to the Countess, prime cause of the Institute. It was proposed by the superintendent of Hanbridge Police. Other personages had wished to propose it, but the stronger right of the Hanbridge superintendent, as chief officer of the largest force of constables in the five towns, could not be disputed. He made a few facetious references to the episode of the Countess's arrival, and brought the house down by saying that if he did his duty he would arrest both the Countess and Denry for driving to the common danger. When he sat down, amid tempestuous applause, there was a hitch. According to the official programme, Sir Jehoshaphat Dane was to have seconded the vote, and Sir G. was not there. All that remained of Sir G. was his chair. The Mayor of Hanbridge looked round about, trying swiftly to make up his mind what was to be done, and Denry heard him whisper to another Mayor for advice. "'Shall I do it?' Denry whispered, and by at once rising relieved the Mayor from the necessity of coming to a decision." Impossible to say why Denry should have risen as he did, without any warning. Ten seconds before, five seconds before, he himself had not the dimmest idea that he was about to address the meeting. All that can be said is that he was subject to these attacks of the unexpected. Once on his legs he began to suffer, for he had never before been on his legs on a platform, or even on a platform at all. He could see nothing whatever except a cloud that had mysteriously and with frightful suddenness filled the room, and through this cloud he could feel that hundreds and hundreds of eyes were piercingly fixed upon him. A voice was saying inside him, "'What a fool you are! What a fool you are! I always told you you were a fool!' And his heart was beating as it had never beat, and his forehead was damp, his throat distressingly dry, and one foot nervously tap-tapping on the floor. This condition lasted for something like ten hours, during which time the eyes continued to pierce the cloud and him with patient, obstinate cruelty. Denry heard someone talking. It was himself. The superintendent had said, "'I have very great pleasure in proposing the vote of thanks to the Countess of Chell.' And so Denry heard himself saying, "'I have very great pleasure in seconding the vote of thanks to the Countess of Chell. He could not think of anything else to say, and there was a pause, a real pause, not a pause merely in Denry's sick imagination. Then the cloud was dissipated, and Denry himself said to the audience of policemen, 
with his own natural tone, smile and gesture, colloquially, informally, comically. "'Now then, move along there, please. I'm not going to say any more.' And for a signal he put his hands in the position for applauding, and sat down. He had tickled the stout ribs of every bobby in the place. The applause surpassed all previous applause. The most staid ornaments on the platform had to laugh. People nudged each other, and explained that it was that chap Machin from Bursley, as if to imply that that chap Machin from Bursley never let a day pass without doing something striking and humorous. The mayor was still smiling when he put the vote to the meeting, and the countess was still smiling when she responded. Afterwards, in the portico, when everything was over, Denry exercised his right to remain in charge of the countess. They escaped from the personages by going out to look for her carriage and neglecting to return. There was no sign of the countess's carriage, but Denry's mule and Victoria were waiting in a quiet corner. "'May I drive you home?' he suggested. But she would not. She said that she had a call to pay before dinner, and that her broom would surely arrive the very next minute. "'Will you come and have tea at the Sub Rosa?' Denry next asked. "'The Sub Rosa?' questioned the Countess. "'Well,' said Denry, "'that's what we call the new tea-room that's just been opened round here.' He indicated a direction. "'It's quite a novelty in the five towns.' The Countess had a passion for tea. "'They have splendid china tea,' said Denry. "'Well,' said the Countess, "'I suppose I may as well go through with it.' At the moment her broom drove up, she instructed her coachman to wait next to the mule and Victoria. Her demeanour had cast off all its similarity to her dress. It appeared to imply that, as she had begun with a mad escapade, she ought to finish with another one. Thus the Countess and Denry went to the tea-shop, and Denry ordered tea and paid for it. There was scarcely a customer in the place, and the few who were fortunate enough to be present had not the wit to recognise the Countess. The proprietress did not recognise the Countess. Later, when it became known that the Countess had actually patronised the Sub Rosa, half the ladies of Hanbridge were almost ill from the sheer disgust that they had not heard of it in time. It would have been so easy for them to be there, taking tea at the next table to the Countess, and observing her choice of cakes, and her manner of holding a spoon, and whether she removed her gloves or retained them in the case of a meringue, it was an opportunity lost that would in all human probability never occur again. And in the discreet corner which he had selected, the Countess fired a sudden shot at Denry. "'How did you get all those details about the state rooms at Snade?' she asked. Upon which opening— the conversation became lively. The same evening, Denry called at the signal office, and gave an order for a half-page advertisement of the Five Towns Universal Thrift Club, patroness the Countess of Chell. The advertisement informed the public that the club had now made arrangements to accept new members. Besides the order for a half-page advertisement, Denry also gave many interesting and authentic details about the historic drive from Sneyd Vale to Hanbridge. The next day the signal was simply full of Denry and the Countess. It had a large photograph, taken by a photographer on Calden Bank, which showed Denry actually driving the Countess, and the Countess's face was full in the picture. It presented, too, an excellently appreciative account of Denry's speech, 
and it congratulated Denry on his first appearance in the public life of the five towns. In parenthesis, it sympathised with Sir G. in his indisposition. In short, Denry's triumph obliterated the memory of his previous triumphs. It obliterated, too, all rumours adverse to the thrift club. In a few days he had a thousand new members. Of course this addition only increased his liabilities, but now he could obtain capital on fair terms, and he did obtain it. A company was formed. The Countess had a few shares in this company. So, strangely, had Jock and his companion the coachman. Not the least of the mysteries was that when Denry reached his mother's cottage on the night of the tea with the Countess, his arm was not in a sling, and showed no symptom of having been damaged. End of chapter 7